For our scripture reading, we turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We consider today the first verse of Hebrews 11, but I'm going to read the entire chapter. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated, that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore, innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, in heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, 
from whence also he received him in a figure. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel gave commandment concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover, and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, as saying to do, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, after that they were compassed about seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not, when she had received the spies with peace. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, wax valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. The text that we consider is Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen.
I'm not preaching a sermon from the Heidelberg Catechism today, but in this connection, I want to read a moment from Lord's Day 7. Lord's Day 7, where the Catechism treats the concept of faith. Are all men then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? No. Only those who are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits by a true faith. What is true faith? True faith is not only a certain knowledge, whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also an assured confidence which the Holy Spirit works by the gospel in my heart that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. I call your attention to what the Catechism says because it's different from what Hebrews 11 verse 1 says. And many have referred to Hebrews 11 verse 1 as a definition of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But Hebrews 11 verse 1 is not a definition of faith. No more than than what I might say concerning Scripture When I say the Bible is the delight of God's children, that's not a definition of scripture, is it? Though the statement is true. And I call your attention to this because this points out the importance of making careful biblical distinctions in concepts. So, we here have heard, for, for example, that faith is passive. Well, it is when you consider that the essence of faith is that it is the God-established bond that unites us with Christ, or as the Catechism puts it, being grafted into Christ. It's that graft. We have nothing to do with the establishment of that graft. But that's not all the Bible says about faith. Faith isn't just the bond that unites us to Christ. That bond is called to activity. By the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, so that that faith becomes also that certain knowledge and assured confidence by which we receive Christ and all his benefits. Well, in Hebrews 11, verse 1, we have another perspective, a different perspective. The purpose of Hebrews 11, verse 1 is 
to strengthen the faith of which this text speaks. The faith which, to the Christian, is the heartbeat of the Christian life. So this verse falls into the context of what began in chapter 10. In verse 19 of that chapter, the inspired writer to the Hebrews, unknown to us, perhaps Barnabas, perhaps Paul, began what is seen as the hortatory, the exhortation part of this epistle. He admonishes the brethren to abide in the faith according to the truth and not to grow weary. Now bear in mind the temptation of those to whom he's speaking because they were Jewish Christians. Christians well acquainted with the Old, temple, the Old Testament temple service and how any who left that temple service would face severe persecution. These were people who stood apparently in almost daily temptation of falling back into the bondage of the Old Testament ceremonies and shadows which Christ had fulfilled. And it's evident that the apparent delay in Christ's return caused them to waver in their faith. Many had already fallen into the bad habit of forsaking the assembling of themselves together. So God's servant warns them in chapter 10, verse 24, not to do that, because that tends only to greater apostasy from the faith, from the true faith. So as an encouragement in their struggle, the writer reminds them of the former days in which they endured a great fight of affliction and persecution, remaining faithful. And we have to continue to practice that same faith, even in the face of much opposition and temptation and contrary to what we see with our natural eyes. Verse 39 of chapter 10, But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We also have need of that reminder of the implied admonition here. We have need of being strengthened in the faith, in the face of, of much adversity and many trials. We sit here having only a small beginning of the new obedience, which is the exercise of faith, the heartbeat of Christ pulsates in us, but there are many, many times in our lives when we can hardly pick up that pulse. And when we, 
when we are examined with the stethoscope of the scriptures, as it were, it's evident that not all is well with us. How much do we live by our faith? If you answer as I, then you will say with shame, very little. Hours and hours of the day go by without living consciously from our faith. And most detrimental is that in the face of all the temptations and trials that confront us from day to day. That old man of sin within us, against which we have to fight constantly, is exceeding sinful and unbelieving and rises up in rebellion in the face of those trials and afflictions. And therefore the word of God comes to us to encourage us, to strengthen us, to get the the spiritual adrenaline to flow and, and the heart to pound in order that we might face and attain the victory over that which the devil would use for our downfall. Faith only is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So I call your attention to to Hebrews 11 verse 1 under the theme, Faith, the Christian's Heartbeat. And we develop this theme simply by following in order the two parts of the text. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith, as referred to here, is undoubtedly the faith which is salvation. Justifying faith. But considered from a particular point of view. That faith is the substance of things hoped for. What is hope? In a certain natural sense of the word, hope is one of the most powerful factors in our facing everyday life. It's a strong support in times of suffering. It's a sustaining power in the face of adversity. It's hope which inspires joy and which serves as the incentive to action and to life. Hope reaches forth for that which is better. It isn't satisfied with the past, nor is the present the high point of our existence, hope reaches forward. All the while dissatisfied with the present state of things. But we must not confuse the Christian hope with the general longing and hope of the world. There's no certainty in the world's hope. Always the world's hope is nothing more than a longing doubt. It's a reaching forward that is somewhat held back by the painful 
uncertainty and fear of what is to come. And that fear is well-grounded because we all face death. And death is the cutting off of the future. Such is the end of the worldly man's hope. But such is not the case with the hope of you who have the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Also for you, hope is that stretching forth in longing after things in the future. Also in your case, it involves a certain dissatisfaction with the present state of things to long for something better for the world and for your own life. But instead of the uncertainty that the man or woman of the world faces, you who are Christian have a calm certainty of the reality of that for which you hope. And that's why, though never fully satisfied in your present state, you can be content in whatever state. You and I hope for many things that the world only counts as folly. Many will look at us as religious fanatics when we speak in the language of of Revelation 21 of the hope for that future world in which all tears will be wiped away and things are made new. Certainly, the world will become provoked when we speak of our hope of being delivered from the influence of this wicked world that will be into that world that will be populated exclusively by the elect children of the living God. We live in the hope that Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, that when our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building with God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. All those things are connected with our eternal salvation and much more, we hope for those things as our future. Hope for us is a living expectation of those future things, glorious things. Yes, we expect those things. And we expect that those things of of which we now speak shall prove to be so glorious that the half cannot be told of the glory that awaits us. So glorious. Do we expect that future to be? We can't even conceive of it now. We read a little about it in the scriptures. And we read about it in picture form because that's all our minds can grasp. Otherwise we can't even imagine it. But that inkling of future glory 
that constitutes the object of our hope is so weak in comparison with the reality, we can't even conceive of it now. But let's also remember, beloved, that that glory of heaven for which we hope is not even the most attractive object or element of our hope. Perhaps it's what we concentrate on the most because, after all, we're we're so naturally self-seeking. But that, that perfection of glory, after all, is is only really a means to an end. And that perfection of heaven, that perfection, that perfect freedom from all sin and sorrow and sickness and temptations and trial, all serves the purpose of that which must be the focal point of our hope. And that is the perfect fellowship that we shall have with the God of our salvation in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of our longing. That's the heart of our expectation as Christians that we might see Christ face to face, that we might walk with him and talk with him and as true and intimate fellow servants, friend servants, that, that we might hear his voice and, and enjoy the intimacy of his loving fellowship perfectly. We shall see God in the face of Jesus Christ. And seeing him, we shall love him with all our heart and soul and mind in everlasting perfection. And loving him, we shall know without any doubt that he loves us and has loved us. And we shall be conscious of that, always, without fail. That's the glory of our hope, by faith. Still more must be said about that hope that characterizes all who believe, hoping for those things, all which are outside the realm of what we can see and hear. We are so certain of them that we forsake many of the things that are seen and walk down life's pathway with our spiritual eyes fixed on that glory that awaits us. Oh, I know I hesitate even to mention that last part because we're so weak. That old man of sin in us wears us down, trying to steal that hope from us, enticing us to follow the hopeless pathways of this world but by the new man in Christ established in us by the Holy Spirit we live with an intense spiritual longing for the certain 
an eternal crown of glory that fades not away. You do, don't you? Now the text says, faith is the substance of those things hoped for. That word substance is a word, the translation of which there have been many differences of opinion. The Greek word is translated in different ways in the New Testament usage. Substance is indeed a possible translation, and if understood correctly, a fitting translation. It conveys the meaning of reality. And for that reason, it's also translated in the New Testament by the words confidence or assurance. Faith is the confidence of things hoped for. But in what sense is that true? How is faith the substance of things hoped for? What that, that does not mean that our faith is the basis for those things that we hope for. That's not so. Faith is not the basis for heaven's existence, nor the heavenly things for which we hope. Faith is not our work by which we obtain those heavenly things. But faith connects us to Christ. And with his life, faith is the substance, the sure confidence of the things hoped for because faith lays hold of the promise of God. And that's demonstrated by the multitude of examples set before us in the rest of Hebrews 11. The promise of God is that upon which all the saints of the Old Testament base their hope. And faith is the confidence of that for which we hope exactly because God's promise is an oath that he swear by himself because he can swear by no one greater that he will save his people in Christ. Faith gives full assent to that promise. God swore with an oath that he would give me who believe that promise. Faith says it is settled by him who is God alone. Nothing can separate me from his love, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you believe that? Being born again by the power of the Spirit of Christ, we are raised with Christ in newness of life. We are placed in heaven with Christ. According to Romans chapter 6, the future glory is sure to be ours. Hope, then, is nothing more than faith stretching out to that future glory. Faith is the, the root, as it were, of that hope. Take faith away, and 
You don't have anymore that calm assurance that the unseen world is really there and that it's for you. But faith is the substance of things hoped for. We also read, faith is the evidence of things not seen. From every outward point of view, and the world will point this out to us, from every outward point of view, the Christian follows a phantom, an imaginary illusion. Normally, we would only go along with things that are seen. And the things that are seen are those things that are perceived by our earthly senses. Our world is limited by our senses, by our sight and our hearing and smell and taste and touch. Apart from faith, Our only world is the world of sensory perception. It's only through the means of our senses that we stand in contact with the world around us and that we become convinced of the reality that is this world in which we live. So we we look at this building and we find it impossible to deny that this building stands here. We believe what our eyes tell us. And when we came here today and had to open the door to enter, we believed our touch. That there was a barrier to our entry until we pulled the door in. We went home this noon and it wasn't long and we were smelling that food and tasting those good gifts of God You hear my voice and you know that I'm talking. So we stand in contact with the world around us. But there's something dreadful about this world in which we live. Because our senses reveal to us that this world is characterized by corruption. Not only are we corrupt, But we also corrupt the things we touch. And the senses show us the curse of God in all things. That's the present world. The world of our senses. In the midst of all those things that we see and taste and touch and and smell and hear, we live a few years maybe as many as 70 or 80 years, in some cases 90 years and more. But then the income. And all the senses are lost. And there's death. There's there's the simple but dreadful fact of our existence. And for that reason, there's absolutely no hope in the things that are seen. All that is seen perishes. 
and we perish with them. You understand the person without Christ has absolutely, absolutely nothing. Nothing. Is it any wonder that Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 58 of the wicked that they are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt? There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. But the text speaks here of evidence of things not seen. There's a world that's entirely outside the world of our perception. And I'm not speaking some foolishness of, of invisible creatures on another planet. But that unseen world includes many events that have happened in the past. In a certain sense of the word, the entire past is hidden from our view, except by what historians have recorded. But in a special sense of the word, that's true for Christians. We believe, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us in the third verse of this chapter, that the world was created by the word of God. No one was present to witness that creation. Nevertheless, we who are Christians, from our most aged saints to our youngest toddlers, believe it and understand it by faith. We know that the whole world that once was perished in the flood. While God saved his church in Noah and his family, while the ark was carried on the waters of that great catastrophe, that flood which changed the whole face of the universe. We know that Abraham was called to be the father of all believers. That Moses was used by God to deliver his people by the mighty wonders from the land of Egypt. All those things occurred in history, but are no more, and for that reason, are unseen. But there are also things that we can neither see, nor hear, nor touch, nor taste, nor smell, which are entirely spiritual. I refer to the re even to the reality of those things that could at one time be touched and seen. Think, for example, of Jesus Christ coming into the flesh, being born in Bethlehem from the womb of his mother Mary. The only thing of that that you could have seen with your eyes was a common baby. Only by faith will you understand the reality of that babe, that he was born of a virgin 
being conceived by the Holy Spirit. You couldn't see that. Only by faith will you understand that that baby was God in the flesh. The same holds true with respect to the reality and significance of the cross. That cross, as it appeared, was nothing strange to the world. Today it would be entirely out of place in society, even where there are executions, a cross would be entirely unacceptable to today's more humane society, and I say that as an exaggeration. But taken in the context of its time, the cross was nothing strange to the world. A man hanging on the cross and dying was a very common sight. Though they gave no explanation for the wonders that occurred that took place in conjunction with Jesus' death on the cross, as far as they could see without faith, however, this was simply a man dying for his evil deeds. But by faith, we understand that what was seen was only representative of things not seen. That cross is the truth that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. By faith we see that, not by sight. The same is true concerning the events of the resurrection and the ascension Historical facts, real events, but seen only by faith. But there is still more. There is also an unseen world in the present, which is very real for us who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, how that corruption that is seen presses upon us from every side. We read of wars and rumors of wars. We see all forms of destruction wrought in creation, tornadoes and earthquakes and volcanoes and hurricanes and drought and so on. We see crime in the streets that exceeds the imaginations of most people. Even in small towns, we see the wretched effects of drug abuse and drunkenness and hatred and anger and murder. The breakup of marriage and the family is seen in a huge percentage of the population and its painful experience enters the church. We who profess Christ face persecution, most often in, in small ways, but sometimes in not so small ways. Some of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world face severe persecution. And in this present time, we face affliction and sorrow. Some face pain from day to day, even moment to moment. 
But all there is which is unseen lies behind all the corruption and devastation. And that's the truth that God rules over all things and works all things together for good to them that love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. To our natural existence, God is invisible. It need not surprise us that there are people who call themselves atheists, who deny that God is. Now Psalm 14, verse 1, for example, tells us that such are fools who deceive themselves, who say in their hearts there is no God. They know better. But it need not surprise us that that there are such. They look at the the heavens with their telescopes. They don't see God. They send out the Hubble telescope to examine the remotest stars and they won't find God. And though they live in the midst of his wonders and observe the very works of his hands, they deny God. But the same is our own inclination in the face of our afflictions and trials. Asaph, in Psalm 77, put his his thoughts to song. He did so under the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit, and his words were recorded for us because God knows that we are flesh. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Sometimes when we look at the things that are seen and when God's hand appears heavy upon us, those are the thoughts of our hearts, aren't they? But there is that which is unseen. According to Psalm 56 verse 8, God puts our tears in his bottle, notes them in his book. That unseen act of God is rooted in another unseen act. He has delivered our souls from death. Do you believe that? You can't see that. That's unseen. But that which is unseen is very real for us by faith. So that with David, we ask, knowing that the answer is sure, Thou who hast delivered my soul from death, wilt thou not deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living? We know that deliverance is presently being worked out by God. We know that he sends forth his angels as ministering spirits to us 
Hebrews 1 verse 14. We can't see them. Not with our earthly eyes. But by faith we see them. We confess with the apostle in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's not seen, is it? But you know, that verse doesn't stand by itself. That verse stands connected with the one that immediately follows. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now the text speaks of faith being the evidence of those things not seen. That is, faith is that which assures us of and demonstrates to us the reality of the things not seen. You notice that I said faith is the evidence to us of the things not seen. Faith is not the proof to all men. My faith has no value to anyone but myself and my fellow believers. But that faith which is ours by God's gift to us in Christ assures us of the reality of that entire world that's outside the realm of our earthly perception and sensory experience. The unbeliever might ask, as a former philosophy professor once asked, can you prove that such an unseen world really exists? And the answer is no. But nor do I need to. I believe the reality of it. And that is sufficient for me and for any believer. The unbelieving scientists ask, can you prove that God created the world? Not at all, but that isn't necessary either. I'm convinced that it is so because of my faith. And if you give me a thousand arguments against the truth of that, you won't, you won't affect me in the least. Do you demand concrete, objective proof? That Christ is the Son of God in the flesh and that he died for sinners? That's also impossible, but also unnecessary. The only evidence I have is the testimony of the word of God. But that's sufficient because I believe that God's word is true. And that leads us to the truth of how faith is the evidence of things not seen? The answer is because faith lays hold of something that reveals the reality. 
And that something is the word of God, the scripture. Faith is not independent. Faith is not blind. Faith, as the evidence of things not seen, clings to the testimony given by God himself, who not only sees that unseen world, but who governs it according to his sovereign purpose. Without that wonder of inspiration and the holy scriptures by which God reveals to us the things unseen, we would know nothing about that unseen world. Without his revelation in scripture, we would be without hope in the world, knowing not Christ and his cross and resurrection. But God has revealed all in Christ Jesus. And faith lays hold of Christ. Through the word. Faith believes the scriptures unconditionally. And therefore faith is the evidence of things not seen. By faith I am convinced. Christ sits at the right hand of God in heavenly glory. That he has died for me that he has accomplished salvation for me, that he has prepared for me a place in his house of many mansions. By faith, I know that even through my afflictions and sorrows, he is leading me by his counsel in perfect wisdom and goodness and mercy afterward to receive me to glory. Do you believe that? But there is one burden with which we continue to struggle, isn't there? If faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, why does it so often seem like we are reeds shaken in the wind? The question of the psalmist in Psalm 42 expresses our own question. Why is my soul cast down and disquieted within me? If by faith, I'm so sure of the reality of that which is not seen, why do I live so little in that unseen world? Does that question strike a chord in your heart, too? The answer is this. The trouble lies not with faith, because faith cannot doubt. Trouble lies with the weakness of our flesh, our lack of faith. 
Faith is absolutely powerful, positive, certain, unshakable. But that faith is often so small in us. And it's frequently covered by really the unbelief of our sinful nature. And when we chuck our lives so full of things that are seen, we leave little room for the things not seen. Those things that are seen captivate our attention and are the object of our diligent search. And the result is we become so used to living by the flesh that we fail when it comes to living by faith. And we fall. And we are discouraged. We begin to doubt. There's an admonition implied here, beloved. An admonition that also fits in the context of the preceding verses and of the chapter that follows we must exercise our faith, bringing it into close contact with the word of God, also as we have it in the scripture. James 4 verse 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. The faith, which is the evidence of things not seen, must be constantly fed by the word of God. Then we shall live more and more in the reality of the unseen. And living in the reality, you shall live in the firm hope that presently you shall see and possess that unseen world personally. There the pulsating life of Christ himself shall fill your heart and life so that there's no room for anything else. And you shall enjoy the glory of God and his fellowship forevermore. Amen. Father, we thank thee for thy word, for thy mercy revealed to us in the preaching of the gospel. We thank thee for thy gift of faith given to us that we might believe and receive it as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Apply thy word to our hearts in this coming week and even to the end of our earthly sojourn. For Jesus' sake, amen.